0: So it's been said that there are two topics that you don't discuss in polite conversation and they are religion and what? Politics. Politics. Now, of course, in church, it's expected that you would talk about religion, but I think most of us get uncomfortable when the guy up front starts to talk about politics because it's a controversial subject. We don't like it when the pulpit is used to push maybe a political agenda, and so, I think a lot of us get very uncomfortable with the idea of politics being discussed in church, politics from the pulpit. A book came out a few years back entitled Unchristian. And in this book, the author shares research on the millennial generation and why so many of them have been leaving church. And so, it's a book about some of your children and some of your grandchildren. And it says that one of the biggest reasons that the millennial generation gives for leaving church is that, quote, the church had become too political. The author writes, many outsiders believe that Christians have a right or even an obligation to pursue political involvement, but they disagree with our methods and attitudes. They say we seem to be pursuing an agenda that benefits only ourselves. They assert that we expect too much out of politics. They question whether we are being motivated by our own economic status rather than our faith commitments when we support conservative policies. They claim that we act and say things in an unchristian manner and they wonder whether Jesus would use political power as we do. One person that uh, they interviewed in this book put it like this. He said, quote, I believe that American Christians have become tools of the Republican election machine at the expense of their own image and message. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. I don't know what you think about that. You might think uh, maybe that's unfair and maybe it is, but do you ever get the sense that politicians are oftentimes using expressions of faith in order to get your vote? Do you ever get cynical, maybe suspicious, when a politician starts talking about their own faith because you think, I think you're just saying this to satisfy my own concerns and to get my vote? Am I alone in that kind of cynicism? A story is told of a Democrat and a Republican eating lunch. And the Democrat says to the Republican, you know, I'm very, very religious. And the Republican knew this guy and he just said, no, you're not. He says, I bet you $20, you can't even recite the Lord's Prayer. And he says, you're on. And they bowed their heads and the man said, now I lay me down to sleep. (laughs) And the Republican said, I'll give you 20 bucks. I had no idea you knew the Lord's Prayer. But we get cynical, we get suspicious when politicians start talking about religion. And of course we get very uncomfortable when people from the pulpit start talking about politics. And here I am this morning talking to you about politics. Why on earth would I begin a sermon by talking about this very controversial subject that quite frankly is often better left out of these kind of discussions in church? Well, I wanna talk to you about politics because what I want you to see today is that right at the very heart of the gospel is a political claim. We could say that right at the very heart of the priorities of Jesus, We've been saying, you know, for the last few weeks, we've been looking together at the priorities of Jesus. Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of Jesus's core priorities. In fact, the one this morning that we're looking at is really the one that encompasses all the others, and it's that Jesus came in order to inaugurate a kingdom on earth, and that's political. Palm Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds hailed him as a king and that's political. And so what I want you to see this morning is that right at the heart of the gospel, right at the heart of Palm Sunday, is a political claim about Jesus. Now let's just clarify for a second what we mean by political. I'm not primarily talking about the Democrats and the Republicans right now. When I talk about political, what I'm talking about is the exercise of power. It's how we get power, it's how we retain power, it's how we use power on earth to get stuff done for people. And in that sense, Palm Sunday is political. And so what I want to do this morning is, I grant, it's, it's a little bit uh, dicey. We're kind of walking dicey ground this morning. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to enter into the story of Palm Sunday. And what I want you to see is the dramatic the shocking, the breathtaking political claim that stands at the very heart of this important event. And then I wanna draw out three implications of this claim for how we think and how we act, how we live in the realm of politics. Does that sound like fun this morning? Let's go, huh? Preach it, baby. I like that, (laughs) it's dangerous to say to me. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking together at the story of Palm Sunday. Let's set it in its context. Palm Sunday occurs, or the first of Palm Sunday occurs on the week of Passover, and during the Passover season, Jews from all over the Greco Roman world would pour into the city of Jerusalem to go on pilgrimage to celebrate the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar, Passover. And it was an electric atmosphere. The city would swell kind of like uh, during the Rose Parade, how Pasadena just swells way, way, way beyond its normal size and capacity. So too, Jerusalem would swell way, way, way beyond its size and capacity as pilgrims poured in. And the climate during that time was electric because Passover was the great celebration of God's victory over the Jews' oppressor, Pharaoh. It was about God's liberation of his people. And so when the Jews who were an oppressed people under Rome gathered in the first century in Jerusalem, they gathered remembering God's victory in the past and they prayed for God's victory over their current oppressor, Rome. And they prayed and they longed for political liberation. And so revolutionary zeal was in the air, The Roman guard was on edge and everyone had their guard up and their watch out. And that's when it happens. Chapter 11, verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the village in front of you. Now stop there. So Bethpage and Bethany are about a couple miles just outside of the city gates in Jerusalem. And as they go on the Mount of Olives, just in the very short distance, they can see the city in all of its glory. They can see the temple from the Mount of Olives. And as they're just about ready to go in there, uh, it was common for Jews during Passover, of course, to sleep outside of the borders of the city. There wasn't space to house everyone in there. And so Jesus made his headquarters just outside the city in the little village of Bethany, And so just as they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus commands two of his disciples to go into this little village of Bethany. And look what he says to them. He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Go and untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say to them, these are not the droids you're looking for. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some were standing there. They said, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and they sat on it. So they get this colt, In this kind of mysterious little way, they go into the city, you know, and obviously something has been prepared in advance here. They get this colt, they bring it to Jesus. Jesus sits on it. And then look what happens in verse 8. Jesus now, he's traveling with his disciples and no doubt hundreds, maybe thousands, all kind of in the neighboring area pouring into the city, these pilgrims coming in together. Jesus is on this colt, and all of a sudden, look what happens. Verse 8, many people see it. They take note, and they spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father, David. Now, I used to think that Palm Sunday was something of a mistake of the crowds. I remember years ago, maybe, I don't know, a decade ago. uh, Do you remember the the election cycle where Ron Paul was running for president? And he was in the primaries, but then he didn't obviously get the uh, nomination or whatever. And I remember uh, as we approached election week, Going into, it was like just before what, Super Tuesday, right? When you go vote for president. And I remember uh, going down, is it Super Tuesday? It's not Super Tuesday, it's just Election Tuesday, right? But I remember driving around in Orange County and uh, seeing these guys on the side of the road and they were waving these signs in the air saying, vote for Ron Paul, you know. And there was these crazy looking hippies and men in suits, you know, the whole kind of entourage that Ron Paul gathered around him. You know, honk for Ron Paul, you know. So what did I do? I gave him a little honk. Because that's what you do, right? You just give him a little honk for Ron Paul. And uh, and then it occurred to me, I'm like, Ron Paul's not even on the ticket. (laughs) You know, it was just a case of overzealot followers, trying to do something that their own leader was not asking them to do. And I've always thought of Palm Sunday in those terms, that it was just sort of a case of these overzealous followers who were not doing exactly what their leader wanted them to do. But what I want you to see from the text is that Palm Sunday was not the result of a mistake from the crowds. It was the result of the intentional and the deliberate action of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus gets on a colt. Think for a moment, in the Gospels, do you ever read about Jesus riding an animal of any kind? Can you think of anywhere in the Gospels? If you can think of somewhere, I'll give you $20. (laughs) You can't think of anywhere because there's nowhere anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus gets on an animal except for once and it's here on Palm Sunday. And let's be clear, it's not that one of his disciples, you know, they had their own donkey, you know, they're cruising along. They're like, oh, poor Jesus, he's been walking these 90 miles. He's just about fatigued and ready to give up. Jesus, come on, won't you just get on my donkey? Won't you ride on my colt or whatever? No, Jesus doesn't get this from one of his disciples. Jesus goes and asks for it. He gets it. Why? Why? Well, he has just walked on foot for 100 miles. Why get a donkey to go another 400 yards? What gives? I mean, what is he doing? It's clear that Jesus in our text is being intentional and he's being provocative. In fact, he's being intentionally provocative in this moment. You see, Jesus knew what riding into Jerusalem during Passover would mean to everyone. He knew the Old Testament. He knew that when the son of Israel's greatest king, Solomon, was anointed to take the throne of his father, David, he entered into the city of Jerusalem riding a colt. Jesus, in essence, getting on this colt is saying, I am the true and the greater son of David, who's come to take not just a temporary, but the eternal throne of the kingdom. He knew the prophet Zechariah, who said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, for your king comes into the city lowly, riding on a donkey. And then later it says, And his rule will stretch from sea to sea. In other words, the prophetic hope was that when the true king of Israel would enter into the world, he would not just rule over Israel, his rule would be over all nations and all tongues and all peoples, and it would stretch from sea to sea, and he would rule until he put all of his enemies under his feet, and to this king, all of the rest of the kings and the lords on the earth would render their greatest gifts and their deepest praise, And Jesus, in this moment, as He gets on the donkey and goes into the city, He is saying dramatically and shockingly to everyone on that Palm Sunday, I am the king that you have been waiting for. I am the king over every king, and I am the Lord over every Lord. So do you see what Jesus is doing? And this is incredible because all throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been seeking to keep His identity under wraps. And so He casts out demons and they say, oh, you're the Son of God, and He says, shut up! You know, And then Peter says, you're the Christ, and Jesus says, keep it under wraps. And this is such a common theme throughout the Gospel of Mark that the scholars have even given it a label, they call it the Messianic Secret. And so throughout the gospel, Jesus has kept his identity secretive, under wraps as it were, but here Jesus comes out intentionally and provocatively to say to us and to say to them and to say to all of the world that I am the king that you have been waiting for. He is going public that he is the world's true king and the disciples get it. And the crowds understand, and so they pull out all of the right passages, and they sing the right songs, and they wave their palm branches, and they lay out the red carpet, and they cry out, Hosanna, save us, Messiah, save us. And you know, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as King and Lord, All throughout the new testament these are the titles that jesus is given king and lord and in the first century these titles had real freight because there was another lord in the first century it was lord caesar there was another king in the first century it was king herod and what the new testament authors are saying is that the real true king is is not Herod. It's Jesus. The real Lord is not Caesar. The real Lord is Jesus. There's a little child just cruising around. He is so handsome. Look at that guy. What a cute little devil. Man, distracted me. So all throughout the New Testament, the authors refer to Jesus as Lord and King. And all throughout the scriptures, you hear these calls to all of the people, all of the kings and the lords of the earth to come and to give their true worship and praise and adoration to the world's true King, Jesus. And so for example, in Psalm two, it says, you kings of the earth, be wise. You rulers of the world, be warned. Come and kiss the sun. Render your worship to the Son, the Eternal Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His wrath. But blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. So here it is. Here's the claim of Palm Sunday. Here is the political, shocking, earth-shattering political claim of Palm Sunday. Jesus is is the king over every king, and Jesus is the Lord over every lord. We could say Jesus is the ultimate president over every President. Jesus is the ultimate prime minister over every prime minister. All authority in heaven and on what? Earth has been rendered to him. So that's the claim of Paul Sunday. So now let's talk for a minute about some of the implications of this claim. This is a huge claim, isn't it? If you're visiting with us for the first time, maybe you're new to Christianity, I just recognize right now, everything I've just said is just pretty crazy stuff, but bear with me for a second. And I want you to see three implications for us in politics. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus on Palm Sunday, number one, gives us a new political framework. Jesus on Palm Sunday gives us first a new political framework. Now, it's common in our day to... Uh, let's see if I can get this thing going here. Where's my, uh, I have a blank screen. I want to write on my screen. Great. It's not working. I'll just have to write with my, my... Just in the air. Will you guys be able to track with me if we just are writing in the air? Can we do that? All right. So the basic way, I think most people think about the relationship between politics and religion goes something like this. You have religion over here, which deals with your personal and your private beliefs and your interior spiritual life. And then you have politics over here, which deals with the public sphere and real stuff of the earth, like economic policy and foreign policy and immigration policy and so on and so forth. And so you have religion, which is personal and private, and then you have politics, which is public and sort of deals with the real stuff of this world. And I think probably the classic expression of this came to us from John F. Kennedy back when he was running as the first Catholic president. And some of you might uh, remember this. I don't. I wasn't born yet. Many of you were. But there was concern over whether or not President Kennedy would wind up, you know, kind of succumbing to the pressure of the Pope, you know, and whether or not he could really be free to serve American interests if he was beholden to sort of the authority of the Pope. And in response, he gave this very famous speech where he said this. He vowed to, quote, never let his religious views influence his policies as president? He went on, he said, my Catholicism will have nothing to do with my policies as president. The real issues of the campaign are war and hunger and communism and not religious issues. So he goes on, I have come here not to talk about the kind of church I believe in, for that would be only important to me, but the kind of America I believe in. And that America is one in which There is full religious freedom, and a president's own religious views is his own private affair. So that's one view, to say that there is religion and politics. But there's another view, I think, and that is not religion and politics, but rather it's Jesus in the service of politics. Or rather, we could say Jesus endorsing a particular political party. And a political party using Jesus for the same reason that Sprite might want Shaquille O'Neal or someone like this to endorse their product. Because we think if Shaquille O'Neal is drinking that soda, even though it has nothing at all to do with Shaquille or his performance, I know Shaquille's way. Better. I just can't get over the Lakers' glory years, all right? I'm sorry. but it has nothing to do with the the quality of the soda or what it does to his body. And so too, people bring Jesus in to endorse their political party platforms and their candidacies, when oftentimes Jesus has very little to do with the very things these people are about. And so there is Jesus in the service of politics and of political agendas. Chuck Colson said in response to this kind of thing, He said, listen, he said, Christians should never have a political party. It is a huge mistake to be married to an ideology because the greatest enemy of the gospel is ideology. And so if it's not Jesus and politics, and it's not Jesus in the service of politics, what is it? Well, I think on Palm Sunday, what we see is Jesus over all politics and politicians or put it like this, the president of the United States is one day going to have to answer to Jesus. And so too every other world leader in the globe will answer to Jesus. And of course we live in a democracy and so you and I will answer to Jesus for what's happening here oftentimes and what we put our votes towards. What it means to say that Jesus is Lord over all It means that Jesus is not just my personal Lord and Savior. It means that God has made Jesus the Lord and Savior, not just of you personally, but over the entire cosmos. He must rule until he has put every single enemy under his feet. He is the head over every rule and principality and power and authority, earthly or spiritual or demonic or political or whatever. Jesus is Lord over all. Are you tracking with me? So this is the claim of Scripture. This is the claim about Jesus. And if this is true, then it means for us, when we engage in politics and voting and imagining things, it means that ultimately the governing thing, the control over our own thinking and our own views ought to be the kingdom of God and not our political party and their party platforms. And can we just say, you know this is true. It's happened with me, it's happened with you guys. It is so easy to latch on to a particular political party and because your political party follows and endorses X, Y, Z views, all of a sudden those become yours to defend when they may or may not be Jesus's to defend. And I think it's probably true to say that Jesus would have a lot of critical things to say about Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians and the whole lot of them. And there also may be things that Republicans and Democrats and libertarians are on about that Jesus would say, yes, you are pursuing a life where you are walking in justice and you're loving mercy and you're walking humbly with God. So we're given a new political framework where Jesus is over every sphere of life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's no place of a separation of church and state. Of course there is. The church is not over the state, but rather Jesus is the head over both church as well as state. And so both the state and the church and the family, and every other sphere of human existence will ultimately be held accountable to Jesus, who is the world's true king. Now you might say, well, I, I, Josh, that's so extreme. That is so crazy. This is my problem with you Christians. You people are so extreme when it comes to Jesus. But let me just ask you, I mean, think about your own political views and about your own views of the world. Is there nothing higher for you than your own personal private opinions? Almost all of us would say that we are accountable to something higher than our own personal desires and opinions. And in fact, most of us would say that there's an accountability that our own political party has to something higher than itself. That the people and the voice of the people have to something higher than themselves. And usually we label that justice or love or whatever that we need to make policies that are in the service of this higher thing called justice and love. And what Christianity says is, yes, but justice and love are personal, and they're grounded in the triune God who is forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who has come among us in Jesus. Jesus is the very embodiment of the love and the justice of God, and so all individuals and governors and leaders and presidents and kings and lords, political parties or whatever are ultimately held accountable to Jesus and His own standard of justice and self-giving love. That's our political framework. But secondly, I want you to see that this not only gives us a new political framework, but secondly, Palm Sunday gives us a new political practice. When Jesus comes into the city, he doesn't do what it was expected Jesus would do. Remember what it was expected Jesus would do, the Messiah would do when he comes into the city, into Jerusalem on a donkey? Messiah would take up a sword, he'd gather the tanks, he'd get the guns, and he'd go all bazooka on the Roman empire. You know, he'd get all Rambo on them, you know, Terminator, you know, style, start overthrowing things. And he would, by force and coercion and violence, he would establish God's kingdom. And God's victory over God's enemies would come through violence. But what happens when he goes into the city? He doesn't take up the sword. He doesn't take up a bazooka. Instead, he gives his life in glad, self-giving love. Here is the power of God over all of the principalities and powers and rulers on earth. It is the power of self-giving, sacrificial love where he takes all that the enemies of God have to throw at him and he bears it in himself and he brings it to an end and he exhausts all of their power. And what the enemies of God, Satan and the demons and all the powers of darkness thought they would do in, in having Christ crucified ultimately becomes their undoing. And it becomes God's great victory over the powers of darkness. The book of Colossians chapter 2 says that God made this display and, and, and humiliated them and humbled them and defeated the powers of darkness through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean for us? It means that the best way for you and me to get and to exercise any authority and power That we have whether it be political or that you get at the office or that you have in the home over your children the very best way to exercise your power in your marriage there's there's politics in marriage isn't there there are plays of power there's ways in which you get power and you use power the best way to do politics is self-giving sacrificial love not violence not threats not coercion But through self sacrificing love. I think in the last, in the 20th century, the best model of this that I can think of in the political realm came from Martin Luther King Jr., who was a leader, who was a political leader. He was bringing about change in culture and society. He had power, he was exercising power, but it was a power that was, that promoted love, that was pursuing kindness to enemies. MLK wrote this, he said, to retaliate with hate and bitterness would do nothing but intensify the hate in the world. Along the way of life, someone must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate. And this can only be done by projecting the ethics of love into the center of our lives. And so what kind of politic are we called into? It's a politic of, of, of living a life of self-sacrificing, self-giving love. Where we don't give out hate for hate, insult for insult, you know, nasty tweet for nasty tweet, and so on and so forth. But we turn the other cheek, we walk the extra mile, we love our enemies, we bless those who curse, persecute us. And this is the greatest display of King Jesus' power on earth in the first century. It was on the cross, and that's why when he's hung up there, Mark makes this point of saying over and over in the text, this is the king, this is how he rules. He's he's, he's enthroned on a cross, as it were, ruling with cruciform, self-giving love. And so Palm Sunday, number one, gives us a new political framework. Number two, it gives us a new political practice. But finally, Palm Sunday gives us a new political hope. Listen, can we just say it, if it's true that Jesus is the world's true King and that Jesus Christ has inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth, if it's true that Jesus is the King over every King, the Lord over every Lord, if that is true, then our ultimate hope and security is not in a strong economy or in a strong military. Our ultimate hope and security, the very anchor of our souls, is in God and in His kingdom. You know, one of the favorite games that our politicians like to play is fear-mongering. Because they know that if they can get us afraid about what the economy is going to do or about what our enemies are going to do or the terrorists are going to do, then all of a sudden we'll give them more power and they'll exert more control over our lives. We'll basically do what they tell us to do if we're just afraid enough. But for those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, we need not fear enemies. We need not fear a failing economy. A failing economy and political enemies and military enemies have never stopped the kingdom of God or the spread of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is eternal. Earthly kingdoms come and go. And what happened to the greatest empire on earth in the first century, Rome? They came and they eventually went. And what's going to happen to America? America has come and America will eventually go. But the kingdom of God is eternal and it's strong and it's sure, and the gates of hell will never overcome God and his kingdom and his purposes in the world. Jesus is returning in glory. Jesus will make all things right. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus will establish God's good and healing and peaceable kingdom on earth. Jesus will judge the world with righteousness. He will decide with equity for the poor. And the glory of God will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's very good news. And may our hearts be rooted in that news.